Okay, welcome back to the Anonymous Review. My name is completely unimportant. Tonight we have a doubleheader. We'll start off with the first woman to find permanent sobriety in Alcoholics Anonymous, Ethel Macy, whose story from Farm to City appears in the big book for several editions. Ethel was recorded in 1955. Let's hear what she has to say. We're very fortunate in having the First Lady of AA. You all know her, you all love her. I'm going to turn the meeting over now to Ethel Mason. Thank you. You need to love me for this Lord. <laughs> Shall we ask God's blessings on this meeting? Dear God, we're gathered together here tonight to try to help each other and with your help to solve our common problems. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in thy sight. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I am Ethel Macy, and I'm an alcoholic. And uh, you can blame George Montgomery for this, because I don't leave meetings anymore, and uh, I'm lazy. And I say, I'll read it in the big book. And I know that there are so many here that have heard me lead many times, and probably some of you have read it in the big book. And uh, probably a lot more of you will be terrifically bored before this is over with because I just hate to leave meetings. I never can prepare anything. I don't know what I'm going to say. Uh, I ju it just has to come out, something, that's for sure. But uh, I am an alcoholic, and uh, I had my last alcoholic drink the eighth day of May, 19 years ago, last May. I like to say I'm going on my 20th year. Uh, I hope I'll make it. Two weeks from yesterday, I'll be 70 years old. And if you think I'm going to tell you how much I weigh, you're crazy. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I didn't start drinking. And after I am going to qualify a little. I got uh, when I was leading quite a bit, yeah, that I didn't qualify. And uh, then uh, there are different things that happened about not qualifying. For instance, uh, a lady come up. Is that loud enough to talk loud? My voice carries. Anyhow, uh, uh, this lady came to me and she said that her little boy, I made a comment in a meeting, something about my drinking. And she said that her little boy said to her, Oh, mother did that nice looking old lady ever drink. <laughs> so, just, just in case that you think that I was too nice to drink, why, well, I'll qualify it a little. Uh, I uh, certainly didn't think I'd ever become an alcoholic. In fact, I didn't know what an alcoholic was because when they told me that I was probably an alcoholic, gee, was I ever relieved because I just thought I was just simply nuts and getting crazier all the time uh, because I didn't control this thing that was getting me down. And I had no control over it. I was so hopeless. And, uh, so when they said, well, they thought I was an alcoholic, it was a relief. I had so many people say that that is the difficult part with them about this program, is admitting they were an alcoholic. It sounded so terrible. Well, I had thought I had become a perfect drunk and then a hopeless drunk. And as I say, then the word alcoholic certainly wasn't disturbing to me. I felt that if I was just sick, maybe I could do something about it. But uh, this... Uh, the drinking, as I say, didn't start until later in my life because uh, my husband was an alcoholic too, 
And I don't say was, most of you know he isn't living. To me, once an alcoholic, always an alcoholic. But he isn't living. And uh, uh, he drank heavily in our younger days. And I had said that I would never marry or have anything to do with a man that drank because my childhood was a very unhappy one through uh, my father drinking like he did. I was deprived of all the things that youngsters hold dear. I was the oldest of a family of seven and very poor family. And I certainly never thought I'd make the mistake of getting mixed up with anyone that drank. But I did. I uh, met my husband. I went to Indiana to visit Matt. And there I met my husband. He was one of the best families in the town. And uh, uh, no drinking connected with it except him. Uh, they were very strict Methodists, and his sister was a musician and played the organ at the Methodist Church. And, and they were deeply disturbed, though, because he certainly was the black sheep of the family. He, uh, uh, his father was a Civil War veteran and had lost an arm in the war, and uh, he was in business there in this small village, uh, insurance and real estate and so forth. And when Ralph was old enough, he took him in partnership. And it was Macy and Sons, but mostly the son was out on a binge. And they, people would remark, there would uh, go uh, my husband's father, I, I believe was 53 when he was born. And uh, they'd say, there goes poor old John Hunter Roscoe. And uh, there he would. He'd, uh, he, they would be so disturbed about his drinking. And so when I, I went to Indiana, my aunt said that I could have dates at her house, but I couldn't. Uh, that was one fellow. And she mentioned another that I couldn't have dates with because he drank too much, that his family was a very fine family. But. Uh, that was the guy I wanted, you know, the forbidden fruit is the thing you always want. <laughs> and four months after she had told me that, uh, I had married the guy. And he didn't tell me he wouldn't drink, and he didn't, uh, he didn't quit drinking, that's for sure. He kept on drinking heavily, and uh, we had two children, and it got worse and worse. And finally, uh, before the second child was born, my... Um, husband's family decided to send us uh, to a farm on the other side of Ravenna where my people live and uh, uh, thought that that at least would stop his drinking and carrying on until after the child was born. <laughs> Unfortunately, instead of helping matters any, uh, he and my father would go to Ravenna and uh, they didn't, uh, they had local option, I guess you call it there then, and they would take a streetcar and go to the falls and get loaded together and come back and uh, they would have this horse and buggy or what have you there to drive home. And uh, one of the instances of uh, uh, these things come back to my mind, my mother was very fond of my husband even with his drinking and excused more in him than she did in my brothers or my father. But uh, this particular time, uh, they had gone to town, and my young brother had gone with them, and he was trying to get them home. And this is, I guess, is sort of an, whatever they call it, express wagon or what have you. But anyhow, my husband, my mother sent for a screen door, and my husband was in the back of this thing with a screen door, and my poor kid brother, every time, a little while, he and the screen door both would fall out, and he'd have to try and get them back in. And then... Uh, when my husband got home, he decided to help my mother, and he was a city boy, a 
never had lived on the farm, but he was going to water the horses for her. And they have three. And uh, he watered them over and over. And I remember he, he had very nice clothes, always tailor-made. And he had uh, a light uh, gray coat of one lovely tailored suit and uh, navy trousers to another lovely tailored suit on. And uh, uh, he kept wandering these horses, and they had one they called Blind Charlie. Well, my mother tried to tell him that he he thought she thought he, they had enough water that he'd had her had them out so many times. She just keep going over and over. Finally, old Blind Charlie threw him in the manure pile, and I went out to drive get him up, and he assured me that he had a hell of a lot better clothes for he ever met me, and he had on then. So I said, just forget it, and I had to leave him laying in the manure pile. I was thinking about that incident the other day, but uh, this drinking went on and on. And finally, we were separated together and uh, over his drinking. And I came back to Ravenna and went to work in the woolen mills where I had went to work before I was 14. And uh, uh, brought my two children back to Ravenna with me. And in a year, he came back and wanted me to take him back and said he, that he wouldn't drink again. He came in on the bum. He had nothing but the clothes on his back. And he'd been doing line work then. And he had a safety valve and a pair of spurs. And uh, I took him back and was glad to have him back. And uh, he stayed dry for 13 years. And Dr. Bob in my story often said that that was an unusually long time for what he considered Roscoe a, a, a true alcoholic to uh, be sober just through fear of what I would do about it, that I wouldn't live with him. So after this 13 years, and uh, we had moved from Kent to Barberton, my husband was with the old Portage Rubber Company there before Cybling took over, and uh, he decided to go out. My oldest daughter had married and was living at home, and they went out to a prize fight, the son-in-law and my husband, and uh, I, I never dreamt of him ever drinking again. I thought he was absolutely cured for quite some time. Uh, after he came back, every time he was a little late, I'd be pacing the floor and sure that he was getting drunk. But uh, it didn't happen and didn't happen, and so I thought he was cured. And of course, I know now he might get cured, but uh, this particular night, why, uh, I had looked at the clock and saw it was quite late, and then I uh, uh, got up and I thought I heard them, and I said to my son-in-law, where's dad? And he says, he's coming, and he was. He was drunk and coming on his hands and knees up the steps. <laughs> well, that was when I made the decision, I guess it was a decision, that uh, uh, I had been so very unhappy during this time that we were separated that I would uh, go with him. And I told him so. I said, well, now uh, the youngest daughter was in high school and the other one married, and if that was what he wanted, that, that's the way we do. I'd go with him, and, and uh, uh, what he drank, I'd drink. Well, that was a big mistake because I could drink six times, sometimes more than that, what he could drink. It just hit me like nobody's business. And, but we had about five years of uh, great companionship and a lot of fun and uh, drinking. But it grew gradually worse, and I'm sure that I was... Uh, Oh, I don't know if you could call it worse afflicted, but uh, possibly had a bigger capacity. And I always have said that uh, women, I think, who have uh, are shielded and don't have to go out to work, 
can keep on drinking uh, more easily than men can who try to maintain some semblance of uh, sobriety enough to hold their jobs. And I would got so I'd take him to work in the morning. I'd done all the driving, and uh, I'd have a terrific hangover because he always passed out long before I did. And then you see, he'd get to sleep and get sort of sobered up, and I'd keep drinking the greater part of the night. People often I hear these leads where they say uh, that they were lone drinkers. Were you? And I said, no. I drank alone and with anyone that had drink with me. And others would say, well, I was a home drinker. Were you? No, I was a home drinker and a, and a broad drinker. I drank anywhere where I could get something to drink and somebody to talk to. So I would have these, uh, he often laughed because he said when he'd get up in the morning, I'd have these parties evidently were my own. And uh, uh, I'd fry chicken and have grease all over, and I found for nearly a whole set of silverware in the register after I got sober in A, uh, where I'd sit to the kitchen table and I suppose uh, drop chicken bones, but particularly silver, down this register. And uh, one of the funny things about it was that he said invariably the evening paper would be all spread out here where I'd eat the chicken and all these bottles. And he said, invariably, it was upside down. I have never been able to figure out why, who I thought I was bluffing by getting that paper like that and pretending I was reading because I was perfectly alone because he was passed out. But that was one of the crazy things I did. <coughs> and uh, uh, I would get up then and uh, take him into work. And he'd be sobered up some, you know, if it was too bad why he wouldn't go into work because he never went in. He had a... Uh, a very good position and he was electrical engineer and it was very much uh, dependent on him that the factory uh, kept going if they had a breakdown or anything uh, he had some men working for him who were uh, well his men just loved him because he always went to bat for them and they would carry on and cover up as much as possible I know that's the only reason he kept the job that he had as long as he did and uh, uh, so sometimes he didn't go in, but a lot of times I'd take him in. He would have slept it off pretty much, and I'd take him in, and oh, I'd have this terrific hangover. And I'd go right down to the joint and start pouring him into me, and sometimes it'd take five or six before I could keep one down. And then when I did, I'd be off to the races again. And uh, many times when I went home, uh, the humiliation would be terrific. Uh, even though I was drunk, I always thought I'll get this beer in the house some way without anyone seeing me doing it. And invariably, uh, the bottom fell out of the sack. It bobbed in the middle of the backyard and flashed and crackled. And, and everybody, of course, and the neighborhood could hear it. I, I still have a bakery man, city bakery man that comes out there. And he said how many times he drove in the yard and found me passed out in the car in the backyard, right in plain daylight. And of course, the more humiliated and remarkable I was over it all, the more defiant I became. Uh, I wonder if many of us are that way. Uh, I just, when we first, uh, we finally lost our home in Barberton and moved out at where I live now. And uh, we got this drive, the, uh, movers drunk the day they moved us and we had quite a put on quite a splurge so that the neighbors would certainly have something to look forward to our living there. 
uh, it means a great deal to me now that I have the respect to that community that I have. And I, I say this in a very humble way because uh, it's taken a lot of doing, uh, especially in my own mind, because I thought everybody knew even more than they did. Now, I wasn't like a lot of uh, us drunks. You tell me. Uh, well, uh, we thought we were covering up and thought that uh, we were doing a good job at it. I didn't. Uh, I thought everybody must know how awful I was drinking. And I know some people that live down the second house from us, they said somebody down in this little community said to him, is it true that woman over there drinks the way she does? And he said, well, I don't see how she could. She washes her car and works out in the garden. And uh, she's a hard worker. I don't see how she could put in much time drinking, but he must not have been watching too carefully. <laughs> Many mornings I think I'll have a grand time working in the yard this morning. And so I'd start out in the yard, and I had a lovely lawn and a lot of flowers, and I think I do wonders, but uh, I wouldn't be out there a half hour till that old voice, you know, that goes on inside of you. Once you've gone to Adams and get a gallon of beer, you can work better. <coughs> down to Adams, just over and over. And so I'd go down to Adams and take my jug and get a gallon of beer and have a few double headers on the side while they were filling this jug. And I'd go back and sit under the tree and have a grand old drug by myself. I'd go after my husband in the afternoon at 3 o'clock. I was supposed to many times. I got way late. think I'll just stop and have a couple of beers and get in a card game and arrive over there two hours maybe late tomorrow. Generally, I was given the privilege that I could drive in for him, which was quite a privilege for an outsider. And uh, I invariably drove in when I couldn't hardly see where the gatehouse was. Uh, when we think of these things, how, how grateful we are that God surely must have been guiding us and been with us. Because I think of all these privileges that I so oh, balled up and, and showed so little appreciation for me, and yet I got through them. Well, the first five years was pretty good, and the second five years I knew I was late. I didn't admit it to anyone, but I knew in my own heart that I had to drink. You know, it's a marvelous thing to get up in the morning and say to yourself, I don't have to have a drink today. And I still marvel at it that I can say that. I don't have to have a drink today because it was always i got to have a drink. i got to have a drink. And, and if I wouldn't have it in the house, the first thing I'd think I was getting to a bar somewhere to get a drink. And we knew that he was going to lose his job if this kept on. You know, it just can't go on forever. And finally, when he'd be off and we'd be on a drunk for several days, like he would say, no, I'll probably get it today. So he'd say, well, I'll call you. Now, take the men's time up at 10 o'clock. I'll call you and see if everything's all right. So he'd call me and I'd be pacing the floor and he'd go in there shaking, expecting to get fired. And he'd call me and he'd say, well, everything's okay once again. And that's something else I often think about as I go back. Uh, how, what kind of appreciation did we show? When I drive in for him, either he or I, one of the bad as the other, would say, hey, we better go to the liquor store and celebrate that he's fired today. So we'd go and <laughs> you do it all over again, and that was the way we showed appreciation that once more we'd escape. And then it just got worse and worse and worse, and like it does for all of us. And it was more hopeless and more hopeless. Then uh, this particular time of the year, anyway, our vacation was always the first two weeks in September, and I was always 
had the car loaded on Saturday noon and ready to start on our vacation. And I was always well loaded by that time too, ready to start. And that was when the real trouble, uh, as I figured, that started. You see, we've been under such a strain with this drinking and trying to save his job and trying to keep a semblance of something uh, decent that uh, when we were going on this vacation, why, then the bars were down and uh, uh, we'd have a little liquor to take with us and, and uh, oh, we got in all kinds of jams to start with. But then it uh, became worse. Uh, finally, I broke my arm. As I still have the... <coughs> marks of it and he didn't drive. I broke it at a uh, little place up on a tea room up on the mountain and, and all I had had was tea that particular day for lunch. Of course had a bottle in the car but it wasn't drunk. And they took us down to a little mining town. They took us. I took drove with the bones sticking out of my wrist down East Raynell where they set my arm. And uh, well I went on a vacation driving with my arm in the calf, drove into Washington and and again, I say, how God ever let me get through, I don't know, but we did. And then the next vacation, I got picked up for drunken driving down in Bel Air. And that was something, because that's one thing hadn't happened to me. I thought I'd die. Never told that to anyone until I'd been in AA two years and told that, that I'd been pinched for drunken driving. Again, we come slicking back to town because it had been in all the papers down there. First woman drunken driver ever picked up in Bel Air. Mrs. R. M. Macy, a big letter, brother. And uh, my husband said then, now if this gets back to Sarbley, I'm finished. This will finish because they won't stand up for that. So we come, uh, well then, I, I very dramatically told the uh, people as they let us out after paying our $117, that, and they were going to escort us over to the bridge to go across the wheelie. I could be very dignified. And I assured them that I hoped that if their wives ever visited Akron, I could show them the same hospitality they had shown me. All the things, the biggest wonder in the world, they didn't throw me right back and clink again. But I guess they were glad to get rid of us. And they took us over to the bridge. And we went over to wheeling and put up at a uh, motel over there and drank for another week until we were her out of money, and then went slinking back to Barberton. Well, once more we escaped. So though we worried pretty much about it. So the next year we decided that we would stay home and we would really just drink sensibly. And we wouldn't get in trouble like that because that drunk driving charge, that was just awful. So we stayed home and on Saturday afternoon of the day we'd be starting out, I set the house on fire. <laughs> the whole house was, the inside of the kitchen was gutted and uh, we didn't even pretend then to sober up. We just drank and drank and we had a, a furnace for hot dogs and so forth down in the backyard. We did, I guess, two or three times make some coffee out there, but we went on the whole two, uh, two weeks that we didn't even sober enough to talk to the insurance man. So now by this time you know that we were drinking, don't you? <laughs> and we were getting in trouble. And we were sick. And we knew that uh, at our age that if he got fired, we used to talk about it. We'd say, if we're in the county house, it won't be the kids' fault. And we can't blame anyone but ourselves because here was this good salary going. And now when I have to get out and work every day at my age, why, the most of you gals could say, well, if Bill or Jack or so forth can't drink a ball our money, I wouldn't be doing this. 
But you see, I drank more than he did. So now I say, get off and pitch, old girl. you got to come to you because you really did it. You fixed it. So I don't have that uh, sort of thing. I just can't feel sorry for myself. But anyhow, finally, then we heard about a, my husband read about Ralph Hensley and about that was the first we'd ever heard of Alcoholics Anonymous. And then a short time after he read that, I was in a bar desperately sick and with a hangover and uh, I couldn't raise the glass to my mouth, my hand shook so. And some guy in there told me that, uh, oh, I said to him, again, this defiance, oh, I just defied the world to say anything about me being such an awful drunk. I often think about I was in a bar one night and it's a wonder the woman didn't get slugged because I must have been good natured that night. She says, oh, anything but a drunken woman and especially a fat one. And the way she said fat brother. I tell you, the grease just drooled the way she said But she didn't get slugged. But I was so filled up with defiance. And then uh, trying to brave my doubt, you know, and I said to this man, I got to join up for that Alcoholics Anonymous if I keep on with this. And he said, well, sister, if you think you're nuts now, you just join up with them. He said, I can get you the password to get in. I know of some of them. But he said, oh, he told me that they hollered and rolled on the floor. And, and I thought, well, I'm crazy enough. I might as well be crazy drunk as crazy sober if they do that. So, uh, again, the chances must. I had to go ways further down, you see, until finally... I was so bad that, and I've been in this other bar, and she had told me that her, I said to her, oh, I wish I could get off this bar. She said, well, my husband can show you how. She said uh, he, he was a terrific drinker, and he joined up with something in Akron that helped him. And I thought, well, that's that crazy bunch the other guy was telling me about. I don't want any of that. But the time came that I did want it, and I, after a prolonged drunk, I got up off in the bed, Dirty, disheveled, just all remorseful, hopeless, and got in the car and drove down to his saloon and told her that if there was anything that he could do to help us to find a way to stay sober. And she said, well, I'll send him over. He came with two cans of beer, and that was the eighth day in May, 19 years ago. And I've never had a drink since, thank God. He said that the doctor that was at the head of this was in Florida. No, he said he lived in Akron, and he went and seen. And I thought I'd die that night. I suffered so. And I thought, no, I don't dare. I thought, I've got to call somebody, a hospital or a doctor or something. And then I thought about this doctor he had told about. So he came back the next morning, and he said that he was in Florida, but they had sent him to Barberton to a doctor who knew quite a bit about it and that he had sent us out some medicine. And so we sweated out and we paced the floor. And uh, some of the boys that came told us that uh, they had liquor in the car and thought if we asked for it or didn't eat it awfully bad, they would bring some in. But I guess they thought that, that we could get by, or we thought we could anyway, because we didn't ask for liquor. And we sweated out, and neither of us was hospitalized. And then we started at King's School, which was the only group then. And we went there religiously religiously for a year. We never missed a Wednesday night. And I just I just loved every bit of it. I, uh, at first I thought that uh, the wives would look down on me and they didn't. Uh, I always, uh, I, I just can't ever fail to give the wives so much credit. They were such a help to me. And I thought that they, probably they'd say, well, 
Oh, they say she's one of those things, too. But the only thing that was said, and not in unkindness at all, they turned me over to Annabelle Gill, and she says, well, I understand you drank, too. And I, instead of resenting it, I said, yes, that's what I'm here for. And we saw several different people that we knew. Coming down the aisle, was, uh, my husband not, nudged me and said, look at that. And there was F.A. Sondling's chauffeur, and he and I had sat next to each other in our cars many times while he was waiting for F.A. and I was waiting for high school, and talked. And little did we know that uh, uh, <laughs> we both had hangovers or anything about that, of course, and here he was, too. And uh, several of the people there that uh, uh, Ralph had been associated with that he knew they drank. And uh, it was, we were very happy about it. Uh, we, just, we just accepted every bit of it that they told us. These men <coughs> kept coming, and uh, uh, groups of two and three of them, and told us what it was all about, tried to. I was just stupid about it as I could be. I didn't understand. I always think about, I like to tell new people, if, if you feel confused and you don't know what it's all about, just keep going to the meetings and talking to people because it will finally soak through. Uh, I uh, have always been glad that I accepted uh, the God that I found in AA because I always believed, but I didn't have any church affiliation, and my people were church people. My mother was a good Christian woman. But uh, I also felt that I found a God in AA uh, in the very simplest way and that I could talk to him in the simplest way. And uh, it meant so much to me. Many of you heard, have heard me say that that first summer in AA, and I'd be so confused, and I'd want to drink sometimes, and I'd go home and go to this garden that I planted, and there I learned to talk to God as I understood him. And he was a very simple God to me, and I talked to him just like I've talked to a dear friend. And I also felt that I built up enough spiritual strength that summer in learning to talk to him the way I did, that... When the time came that I had to have that strength, that it was there, and I had no desire to drink because this beloved husband of mine was stricken with a heart condition. He was ill a year before he died, and we'd have three and a half years of this wonderful life of AA. And he loved every minute of it. And during his illness, uh, these AA years, as they, all of you are, through such wonderful friends. I didn't know there was such friendship. I didn't know there could be such friendship. I often say with these beautiful orchids that I've had presented to me, I've never had a darn bartender in my life give me an orchid and all the money I've spent on them. And I've had so many since I've been in AA. But uh, after his uh, passing, I knew that he never asked me yet perfect faith in me, evidently, because he never asked me when he knew that he was dying, would I ever take another drink, or what would I do? I, I have felt that that his faith was just, well, he had no doubt of me that I wouldn't. And I've always felt that if I ever uh, went to take a drink, that his faith would come between me and that drink, and I hope it would be that way. I, I don't uh, crave a drink. I've had a lot of trouble, as most of you know, but... Uh, uh, I've had these, this wonderful friendship uh, that I have in an AA uh, to help me and give me strength. And uh, I, I have learned to pray in a simple way. Probably not. I hear many of you say that you have regular time for prayer or you have time for asking for help. I don't. 
I ask for it uh, when I feel I need it. I do a lot of driving in my work, and many of my prayers are old hymns that I love that I sing. And it's a good thing nobody can hear them because it's a voice of mine. <laughs> but nevertheless, it's a form of prayer for me. And when they first told me that my husband wasn't going to live, I, uh, uh, I, I couldn't accept it. I, I tried to gamble with this God that I had found, uh, or bargain with him, I mean, and uh, asked him uh, to please not do that to me. That was the one thing I couldn't take. And uh, uh, he was given to me long, much longer than they expected he would live. And uh, I think in that time, I built up strength enough uh, to be able to say, Thy will, not mine. It's a terribly warm night, and I know you're all uncomfortable, and I'm not going to keep you any longer. If you if you want to ask any questions uh, about how I stay sober, go ahead. I don't know if I can tell you or not. But thanks for listening to this terribly hot night. once in a while for you all to please think about the important part that women have played in AA. Uh, Ann Smith had uh, patience with Job and went through everything, and she had explicit faith she must have had, or hope at least, that this was going to work. Henrietta Dawson was the one that got Bill persuaded to let these guys talk to him when he said, what's it going to cost? <laughs> Think of Sister Ignatius, marvelous, marvelous part that she has played. And think of the part of so many, many of these wives. There was Henrietta Simon. Uh, she played this. Some of you maybe don't know this part of it, but you know it was she that Bill Wilson contacted when he was in Akron. And then these wonderful wives that carry on and play such an important part in their husband's sobriety. And then, gradually, these alcoholic women that are coming in, and when I first came in, as I say, uh, there weren't any. And I look in every crowd where I am of good airs, and I see these lovely, ladylike, lovely-looking women that are just sick, like you men are. And I know when I see them, and I realize that gradually, gradually, this wall of prejudice is being torn down more and more, and people are realizing, though there's always been this double standard of being a woman drunk being so much worse, it isn't like it used to be about that. People are realizing that these women are sick people and that they need help, and it's such a marvelous feeling, a time I have left here to look around every crowd I go and see these lovely-looking ladies that are alcoholics. And I probably have left out some other women that have played important parts. Uh, but to me, of course, uh, I didn't owe loss for quite some time. But I, I became very close to Henrietta Sagley and to Henrietta Dotson. And, of course, Doc and Ann spent an evening in our house for nearly every week for a long time after we came in. And it was such a wonderful privilege that I was given 
I had to pay tribute to the women of Alcoholics Anonymous.